Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you all. And I know several of you were praying as we were flying back with the kids. Uh, you knew they had had uh, sinus infections and trying to deal with that. And we, Lord answered those prayers. So thank you for praying. They didn't have any trouble with the sinus, with the pressure on the plane or anything like that. Still getting over it. So we decided not to bring them and share that with you this morning. Uh, but it is wonderful to be back with you. Enjoyed the uh, fellowship yesterday at uh, our fall picnic and uh, chili cook-off, um, hopefully the first of many. Um, well, I learned a couple of things yesterday, one of which is that we have a lot of great chili and pie recipes here. Uh, secondly, if my slower-than-normal gait told you anything, I learned not to do a sack race against the Doan boys. So they both beat me and beat me. So... No, it was a wonderful day of fellowship. Enjoyed that very much. It's wonderful to be back with you on uh, uh, this beautiful fall morning. If you haven't already, you can open your Bibles to Matthew. As we pick back up in chapter 17, and that song was really a wonderful, wonderful intro into where we'll be this morning as we were reminded again of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by his own lips. And we're going to jump right in. I'm going to read, and we'll read together this morning, beginning in verse 22. So we'll wrap up the end of chapter 17 this morning in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. By way of reminder, Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration there, Mount Hermon. He's there at the base. He just had finished the healing there of that demon-possessed boy at the plea, the prayerful plea of the Father who said, your, your disciples can do nothing. They've tried, they can't fix it. And Jesus healed him. While people were still marveling, Luke tells us, while they were gathered there, Jesus said to them in verse 22, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From the sons or from the strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes out, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Let's pray as we begin our study and ask a bunch of questions about this text this morning. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Father, it is a joy to come not only for the fellowship that we enjoy through your Son, <laughs> but through the ways that the singing that you've given us and the words, the lyrics, music, the gift that it is, how it lifts our eyes to heaven. We thank you for that this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to raise our eyes from the troubles, the afflictions, the difficulties of this life. Father, it is, it is a hard world to live in. Some days are harder than others. Some weeks are harder than others. 
Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the hope that is found in him. We thank you that that we recognize as your children that this life and the toil of it is preparing us for the life to come. Help us to rejoice in that, to delight in that. This morning as we open up your word and we look at, again, the foretelling of the suffering and death on the cross, along with the hope of the resurrection, that our eyes would be turned to that day, to that time, that we would reflect once again upon the, the gift that was given there at the cross and the hope we have because of it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in Matthew's gospel, he's been edging us closer and closer to Christ's death, to that death in Jerusalem, to what we call the, the passion of Christ. Passion, you may or may not be aware of, is uh, derived from a Latin term that means suffering. So when we talk about the passion of Christ, we're referring to the suffering of Christ. And as we move closer to Jesus' ultimate purpose for coming into this world, and the suffering that takes place in Jerusalem, we begin to see the, uh, his purpose and what God intends come into clearer and clearer focus. Kind of like when you put on binoculars, you're trying to see something in the distance and you begin to adjust it and you have to bring it into focus. And so the closer that Matthew brings us to Jerusalem, the more hints he begins to drop, the more explicit the teaching he begins to unfold in the ministry of Christ as it brings into focus that purpose for which Christ came. Perhaps that's what makes this short section at the end of chapter 17 a bit frustrating at first. At first glance, it seems to throw together a bunch of uh, brief references, once again to the imminent death of Christ, but he couples that with a great fishing story. It really begs the question, how in the world do these fit together? What does throwing your line into the sea and drawing up a fish with a coin in its mouth have to do with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Was Matthew just simply remembering a really interesting anecdote from his time with Christ? Or is there more to it than that? How does it develop? How does it reinforce the theological course, the theological bent of Matthew's gospel? Those are the questions we really want to consider as we, as we look at this text this morning. So let's look together. Let's see if we can find the links in this theological chain from these two brief scenes at the end of Matthew 17. As we've already noted, and it's right there in the text in front of you, we are still in Galilee. Galilee is to the north of Israel. Here in verses 22 through 23, we are probably, as we've already said, still at the foot of Mount Hermon. Since Luke says in Luke 9, 43 through 45, which is a parallel passage recalling some of the same events, that what Jesus says here was said immediately after the healing of that demon-possessed boy. And you may remember that Jesus had previously told his disciples of his coming death in Jerusalem not long ago. It would have just been a few weeks at most. You can just turn a couple pages over to Matthew 16. And you'd see in verse 21 where Jesus said, from that time, or Matthew relates to us, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. He must be killed and he will be raised on the third day. Now for the second time, Jesus describes this coming death along with the resurrection on the third day. And once again, the disciples are deeply disturbed by Jesus' words. 
may remember the first time they were so disturbed that Peter takes Jesus aside to correct him and to instruct him. They hadn't gone more than a couple of paces before Jesus, in front of the other disciples, corrects Peter and rebukes him. But see, it wasn't just selfishness that was driving this. It was, this is someone they loved. They didn't just respect Jesus, they loved him. So someone they expected to usher in the promised Davidic reign. These words on the heels of yet another great, te- great healing, another tremendous promise about faith, these words that he is headed to Jerusalem and he will die, this hits them hard. This is painful for them to hear. They don't like this news. None of us like bad news. You know, when it's offered good news or bad news, I don't know if you're like me, I'm like, give me the good news first so I can quickly, you know, wash it down with the good news. But we also learn that more than just being disturbed, Luke and Mark note that they didn't even understand what was going on. They could not comprehend. If you want to turn there, you can to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 9, verses 43-45. It's always interesting to see the different color and perspectives the different gospel writers bring to bear. If you've ever had children come to you with an exciting story, you know exactly what that looks like, where each of them tells the same story, and yet you almost hear it anew each time, because you get to hear the different perspectives, and that's what we get from these gospel writers. There's no contradictions here. It's the wonderful colored perspective that different persons have when they experience something. So here, Luke 9, 44 through 45, and Jesus said to the disciples, crowds would have been within earshot, let these words sink into your heart, into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. It's very similar. There's a little more color provided there. Mark does something very similar in Mark 9 as well. But the question that is worth asking is, what is it that they did not understand? What was concealed? What was it that they were afraid to ask? Have you ever heard something, maybe been delivered some news, and you really didn't want to know anymore. It was too grievous. It was too painful. Maybe it's regarding a friend or a family member, whether it's sickness. Maybe it's the unveiling of sin in someone's life. You don't want to know all the details. It's, it's painful to hear these things and to bear these things. That's the disciples here. This is Jesus is about to die, and they're afraid. The news is, is bad enough that he's got to die, but now he's talking, saying something about being delivered over. And this is, this is a little bit new. This is a little bit different. And they're afraid if they ask anything further, they're going to learn more unpleasant things. They're not sure they can handle any more bad news. I mean, up to this point, they were struggling to even accept that he would die. Up to this point, the death and the suffering, they were generically described as the will of God, the plan of God. It's what God was going to do, and he was going to use these religious leaders to put Jesus to death. But but now there's something new. There's the hint, and it's only a hint, an echo at this point. 
Now, the persons to whom Matthew was writing and to us today, we know the rest of the story. We know about the betrayal of Christ. We know that it was from one of the twelve. But here, that betrayal, that handing over, it's the same term, begins to hint at something much more painful. Now there's the possibility to these disciples' ears that God's plan involves a betrayal, a betrayal which would infer that it was someone who is close. And this, this they cannot bear. They don't understand it, and they don't want to understand it. They don't want to know at this point. As I read that, I, I can sympathize with that. I can empathize with that. But perhaps what is frustrating, and maybe it's frustrating to you as well, is what appears to be the disciples' continual ignoring of the very end of what Jesus said. He said it in chapter 16. He says it here. But I will be raised again on the third day. In all of the despair, in all of the correction, in all of the hopelessness, where's, where's the excitement about the resurrection? The suffering, the death, and the betrayal, whatever that means to them at this point, they don't understand and they don't want to understand. It would be news too painful to bear. These things have so preoccupied their minds that they really can't see past them to the resurrection. As I was reading this and thinking about this, I really was struck by, isn't that so true of us? We see hardships, we see suffering, and we despair very quickly, don't we? We get preoccupied very quickly with the things of this world. We forget the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We forget the promise that trials and tribulations are intended to increase our faith. We forget that the sufferings of this present world, as Paul describes it, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We cannot see the resurrection or our future eternity in heaven because we become so preoccupied with these things. We let our expectations of how we think we should be treated, how we think life should go, rule the day. We somehow think that to be a Christian means that life should not be hard, or at least not as hard, right? That we deserve better. Isn't it interesting? Perhaps appalling is a better term. How we think our life should be better, easier, and involve less suffering than the Son of God's? And my conceit really knows no bounds. I struggle with this. Well, that's where the disciples are. But then in verse 24, Matthew, I mean, it's, it's virtual whiplash. Verse 24, he takes us abruptly from the foot of Mount Hermon to the shores of Galilee near Capernaum. It's about 25, 30 miles to the south, south. West. It would have been a couple days probably of travel to get there. And it's here that we encounter a scene that's recorded only by Matthew. And it's one that leaves, at least it left me, a bit perplexed at first as to how this fits in. Where does this fit into the Gospel of Matthew in the story? It feels a lot more like an interesting anecdote than something integral to the theological message of Matthew's Gospel. You got tax collectors and a really cool fishing story. One of the important things to remember as we read any of the Gospels 
is that Matthew is not trying to give us a detailed history of every single thing and event that took place. In fact, that would be quite impossible. John reminds us of that at the end of his gospel. At the very end, do you remember what John says? He says in John 21, 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, John says, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So rather than set, up on, set out on an impossible task, Matthew's gospel and that of the other writers is a collection of events and teachings from Christ's life that are 100% true, but present and explain, they're presented to explain and convince us of something. Sometimes they start off right at the start, like Luke's gospel does when he's writing to Theophilus. And that's something, as we've noted from the beginning in the gospel of Matthew, that Matthew is trying to illustrate for us, trying to highlight for us, trying to convince us of, is that Jesus is what? King, that he is ruler. He is the promised ruler, the son of David, the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, the ruler over all mankind, the one to whom all allegiance is owed. Well, that part may be clear, but how does the fishing story fit in? Well, this whole thing begins when Peter's approach, when they get back to Capernaum, which you may remember is Peter's hometown. This was, his house was there. His mother in law lived with, or his mother-in-law lived with him there. Jesus had healed her. So they get back to Peter's hometown. This was really functioned as something of a base of operations for much of Jesus' ministry, especially the Galilean ministry. And shortly after getting there, Peter's approached by temple tax collectors, who instead of going to Jesus, they go to Peter. And we don't know why. It, could have, it certainly could have been out of deference. They refer to him as teacher. So they go to the disciple, not the rabbi. But it's also just as likely that they were aware of the hostility that existed between Jesus and the religious leaders and did not wish to antagonize it further, but felt they could rather press, or perhaps a better term is guilt, Peter into this tax. Sure enough, Peter responds by saying, yes, of course he pays this tax. Now, in order to get a bit of, to get started, we really need a bit of background on taxes Probably the only thing as painful as paying taxes is trying to understand tax system. But if you'll bear with me, I think we will all be rewarded. When Jesus and the disciples were so quickly sought out by these temple tax collectors, you need to understand these are not tax collectors coming to collect Roman taxes. They were coming to collect a special tax that Rome allowed them to collect for the temple and the temple or cultic worship. They came on behalf of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, many of the same religious leaders we've seen antagonizing and interacting with Christ throughout his ministry. And again, at the forefront from Peter's answer, we really don't know if Peter is saying that in the past Jesus has always paid this tax, so yes, he'll do it again, and that's been the pattern, or he's acting on his own assumptions. Regardless... As this little interaction progresses, as we see Jesus' questions to Peter, we realize that regardless of whether Jesus had paid this tax previously or not, Peter's response was wholly inadequate. This tax itself traces back to the time of Nehemiah, which would have been around 445 B.C., the reinstituting the temple. You remember it was rebuilt under Ezra and the ministry there, and then Haggai, and then you had 
the walls that were rebuilt by Nehemiah around 445 B.C. At the rebuilding of the walls, the Judeans came together and they pledged in Nehemiah 10, 32-33, saying, We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of God, of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, the appointed times, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Now, approximately a little over four centuries later, it's increased to half a shekel. It's pretty minor inflation. And the general consensus is that this increase, it wasn't just tied to inflation or something like that, but it was because there began to be incorporation of the teaching from Exodus 30, going back much further than Nehemiah's day. We read in Exodus 30, 11 through 16, everyone who is numbered, beginning at 20 years of age and older, and they typically did 20 to 50, shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You shall make atonement. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Atonement's not a word we throw around every day. It's to, to make appeasement, to make payment. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's for that process. Now what is helpful for our study of Matthew here in our verses this morning is how this tax that had been reinstituted under Nehemiah and kind of codified in the years that followed, the centuries that followed, to understand how it was perceived by Jews, both in Israel and throughout the world, because there were Jews in other places. Remember, many Jews had stayed behind in Babylon, for example. In fact, Josephus, who was a Jewish writer and historian around the time of Christ, noted that in the first century, which was now, the Jews who still lived in Babylon, they, they had these storehouses, and in these storehouses, they collected the temple tax, this two drachma, this half shekel tax. And they would keep it along with all of the other contributions and would deliver them to Jerusalem. A commentator named William Thompson, no relation, noted that this annual donation was used for the sacrifices in the temple. It was one of the few means available to Jews throughout the world for maintaining contact with the religious center in Jerusalem and for participating in its worship practices which symbolized their relation to God. This half shekel was a visible sign of their religious unity and solidarity. It served as ransom money for the atonement of their sins. Philo of Alexandria, another Jewish contemporary at the time of Christ, notes of this tax that it was, in fact, a ransom for our own soul. Thompson concludes then, saying, against this background, whoever paid the half shekel to the temple expressed his, and it would have been by extension his family's, allegiance to the Jewish community and his desire to share in the sacrifices which make atonement for sin. So to summarize it, this tax was given as a means of participating in the religious worship and activities in Jerusalem in a very intimate way, specifically in the sin offerings and in the atonement for sin. It allowed Jews to participate even at a distance 
And as Philo explained it, it was viewed as a ransom for one's own soul. It was viewed the same as bringing the lamb or the sin offering to the temple for sacrifice, which brought that temporary atonement or forgiveness of sins. That puts this tax in a little bit of a different light, doesn't it? So let's go back to verse 25. When they come back to the house, probably Peter's house again, since that is where they would normally stay when in Capernaum, and it just says the house, and that's, that's the house we know. Upon returning to the house, Jesus asked Peter, it's really an interesting question about taxes in general. We don't know if Jesus had been standing near Peter when those tax collectors came up to him. He very well could have. I tend to think he was separated from them. As a result, I think this is most likely Jesus once again, just very subtly revealing his supernatural omniscience and knowledge. We've seen this many other times where he knew what they were thinking or he brings up to them, in fact, we'll see it next week, where he knows exactly the conversation they've been having and the things they've been thinking about. And rather than just saying, why are you talking about these things? He asks questions and draws it out. But he asks this rather interesting question and he asks about taxation in general as it's carried out in the world at large. And he says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Jesus, you notice, divides people into two categories, sons and strangers, children and strangers. And despite the unusual question, their answer is rather obvious. And Peter rightly responds, from strangers. Kings don't go and levy taxes against their children to run the kingdom. They go and levy it against everybody else. Their children are the recipients of that. It's a short question. It's a short answer. So Jesus then makes what one commentator calls a rather provocative statement. And again, it's a very short statement. Provocative because of what it implies. And Jesus says, then the sons are exempt. Now you realize there is a lot implied there because then we go to a fishing story. What, what is he implying? Who are the sons? What are they exempt from? Who is being exempted from something? Well, in the context, it, it's rather clear. You, you can answer those questions. I think you would all pass that test if I were to ask you to turn in a, write it down and turn it in. They're exempt from this tax. They're exempt from the tax that's given for the sacrifice of sins. But who are the sons? Well, first, we know Jesus, uh, but let me stop there. Who is it that's collecting the tax? Who is this tax for? It's for the temple, but uh, who are the sons of this king and who is the king for whom they're being collected? Well, the obvious answer is if it's for the temple, then these taxes are for God. So then the sons that he's saying are exempt are sons of God. So now we ask the question that I prematurely asked, who are the sons? Who are these sons of God, these sons of the king? Well, first, Jesus is a son. Matthew 1 describes that, lays out the genealogies in detail so that we see that. And Jesus, in Matthew 9.27, explicitly calls Jesus the son of God or the son of David. He's described as the son of Abraham in chapter 1. 
And most importantly, the Son of God in chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 16, verse 16, that we just looked at a few weeks ago. But perhaps somewhat unexpectedly, Jesus includes Peter as well as the other disciples into this category as well. And we see that because Jesus includes Peter in the we of verse 27 in order that we, the sons, not offend them. So who, is the, who are the sons? It includes all those who have repented of their sins who've put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. These are the children of God throughout Scripture. John 1, verse 12, John opens his gospel with this explanation, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, you know the verse, children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Paul says in Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God. At this point, some of you might be having that kind of aha moment. You're starting to see the connection here between verses 22 and 23 and this story in Capernaum, this interaction with the tax collectors. In the, verse, in the preceding verses, Jesus has just again declared that he must die. He must be handed over in Jerusalem, handed over just as one hands over a lamb for a sacrifice. Now Jesus is telling the disciples that the sons are exempt. Why would they be exempt from a tax related to and participating in atoning for sin? Why would they be exempt from the sacrificial system? Why would they be exempt from helping to provide the lambs for the sacrifice in Jerusalem? Well, the answer is they're exempt because the one, because one has come whose death and sacrifice will provide the once for all forgiveness of sins, as the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's much more in Hebrews 10 that speaks to this once-for-all sacrifice, the replacing of the continual offerings of the bulls and the goats and the lambs. And do you remember John the Baptist's words upon seeing Jesus on the banks of the Jordan that day? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Isaiah 53, we read, you may want to turn there, Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, and again, so much of this chapter pertains to this, but just four verses here, beginning in verse 4, describing the one whom the Lord will send, the shoot of Jesse. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to his own way. 
but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its, his, its shears. So he did not open his mouth. There's a beautiful picture Matthew is beginning to paint here. It's one that he continues to fill in throughout the rest of his gospel, especially as we enter in to the passion of Christ. Of the passing away of the old sacrificial system, of the inefficacy of that system, in place of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the very Lamb of God. So you see how these verses connect really so neatly together? Verses 22 and 23 describe the sacrifice that is coming. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice for the sins of the world. So then they arrive and a tax is being requested for the temporary sacrifice that atones for sin. And Jesus explains that's no longer needed. It's no longer needed for one who is a son of God. Because it's going to all be paid for in the sacrifice of Christ. And what of the end of verse 27? Well, Jesus then tells Peter to go fishing. And notice, by the way, this is one of those interesting places where it's got to pay attention to the details. He says, go use a hook. Up to this point, every time you've seen them fishing, they're using what? Nets. Nets. When I go fishing, and I love fishing, when I go fishing, I love to increase my chances, whether it be by more poles or by a net. But here, only one fish is needed. And it's going to be the first one you pull up, Peter. There's no need for a net. Jesus wants Peter again to trust him. This is one of those small yet clear examples of trust me, Peter. Watch me provide. And while we don't see Peter catching the fish, we only see the instruction to do it and presume that he obeyed in light of Jesus' command. What we do see is the reason for the fishing and getting this shekel. It's so as to not cause offense. Here Jesus has just explained that he has the right to forego, in fact, all of them do, the right for, to forego paying this tax. I think I would dare say that if any of us had the right and the ability to not pay our taxes this year, we'd be more than happy to oblige. But this tax, again, this particular tax, this is not a teaching that allows you to go and avoid paying taxes, just so we're clear. This is a very specific tax that they're exempted from. And we've already seen the reason why. But even this, Jesus is willing to forego his rights and is willing to pay to these religious leaders, to the very people, the very system that will murder him in the coming weeks so as to not cause an offense to those who are collecting the tax. Jesus doesn't mind offending the religious leaders. We're clear on that. We've seen that plenty of times. In fact, it's the disciples who are nervous about offending people when they come to Jesus saying, do you not know that your words offended them? Now, Jesus isn't afraid of offending someone's sensibilities when the time is right over what is clearly an issue where the, the heart of the gospel is at stake. But he also doesn't unnecessarily offend. He doesn't look to create stumbling blocks. 
I like the, one, the way one commentator put it when he said this remarkable unit concludes in compassion for those who could not possibly understand the reason why Jesus might not pay this tax. By providing the payment in exchange for himself and for Peter. There's really several important responses that these verses call for. Just two of them that we'll highlight this morning as we conclude. The first is maybe right in front of us. It's rather obvious. And it's that this passage calls for each of us, if we have not already done so, to become a son or a daughter of the king. It's of absolute necessity. There's some here this morning who continue to pay the tax. Now, you're not carrying around shekels in your wallets. I realize that. But you paid in other ways. You think that you can earn God's favor by your works, by your actions, by your deeds. You can curry God's favor by attending church, by reading your Bible, by doing those type of things. There are others who are not even aware that there is a tax due, who have gone about living their lives, lives paying no mind at all to God's demands, might assume perhaps that God is too loving to really sentence us to hell. But for each of these persons, whether it's those trying to pay a tax or those who don't even realize that taxes due, there is a payment that will come due, and that is the wages of their sin. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans 6. In verse 23, he says, the wages of sin is death. Not just physical, but eternal torment in hell. And this is a tax, this is a payment that every one of us rightly owes before a holy God. There is not one of us who this verse does not apply to. But what I hope you know, but which I am certain not everybody here understands, is that just like that fish that God had previously prepared and placed that shekel in its mouth to be the provision, God has made provision and payment for your sins. Like Peter, you need to go in faith, exercise that faith, and call upon Christ. Recognize your spiritual poverty. Put your trust in Him for your eternal salvation. That's how that tax, that payment is made. It's then that you'll be called a daughter or a son of the king when you call out to Jesus for salvation, for rescue from sin and its consequence. And there's a second response that these verses demand, and it's for those who would already claim to be a son and a daughter of God. It stems from thankfulness. Thankfulness is the big picture response that all, each of us should have when we read these these words and these passages, we realize what we are exempt from. You see, we've been exempted from that great tax that is due, that great payment that is due, according to Romans 6. If we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and if, as we are called to worship, reminded us of, if we were, our ownership, our citizenship has been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. But one of the ways thankfulness is most clearly lived out is in the giving up of our claim to rights whenever it will further the gospel. This is a message that is especially hard for Americans to hear, I think. 
And we grow up being told all the rights we have, some we don't have. We even have our Bill of Rights. We're pretty unique in the world in terms of how much we think we are owed and how much we think we have a right to. But as believers, we have an example from Christ who though a king and a son of the king would forgo rights to pay a tax and at a much greater level would forgo his status as king to humble himself to death, to walk among us, to be beaten, spat upon, to die upon a cross. Why is it then, and I'll start by putting myself in this category, why is it then that I try to cling so tightly to my perceived rights? Often blurring the lines between being a Christian and being an American. One of the reasons I don't like to talk about politics or post anything on Facebook or have a blog about it is that I I have resolved, and I do this imperfectly, but I've resolved that so far as it depends upon me, if I'm ever going to be persecuted for something, I want it to be really obvious that I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. I don't want to be persecuted because I'm an American. I'm okay if that happens, but I want the only legitimate reason to be because I'm a Christian. Now, I can't control everything. I can't control everything people think, and that's not my responsibility. But so far as it depends upon me, if I am going to be persecuted, I want it to be really clear that it's because I'm a Christian. Not because of some opinion I have or some personal belief I have. I want to live my life where those legitimate reasons are my love for Christ and how I live that out. Not because of a political party, not because of my opinion on schooling or opinion on vaccination, but for being a Christian. And it doesn't make those other things unimportant, but it means that we need to tread very carefully in how we talk or assert opinions and beliefs so that the only real cause for offense is being a Christian. Christ gave us the supreme example of what it looks like to lay aside his rights. You see it in verses 23 through 23 where he is willing to go and suffer death on the cross. You see it in a much simpler way in these other verses where he's willing to go pay a tax that he doesn't even have any obligation to pay. Because at the end of the day, if Jesus can provide for a tax out of the mouth of fish, he can solve those other concerns we have in life. If we'll walk by faith, and as Paul said to the Thessalonians, make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to our own business, to work with our hands just as we've been commanded so that we will behave properly toward outsiders, those others, those strangers, and not be in any need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that come to us this morning from this passage in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you for the, the way in which your spirit worked alongside Matthew and the, the framing of this message and bringing it to us. Father, it is, uh, there's times where we come across a passage like this and we are left wondering at the beginning, how does this all line up? How does it play together? And Father, when we give the time and attention, we're thankful for how your spirit instructs us and teaches us. Father, help us to live with the cross in view, 
with the resurrection in view, with eternity in view. Help it to guide how we go about this life, how we try to hold on to rights and claims to what we think we are owed. Help us to hold loosely to the things of this world, to consider them as all passing away. Help us to look at the sufferings that come as preparation for the life to come. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing